Hello and welcome back to The Anecdotalist. I'm your host, Paul Packard, and as always, with me today, my co-host, Jason McKinney. Hello, I am Jason. As you all know, the format of the show is I do the research and then share the information with Jason in a hopefully manageable way. And as usual, I get to sit back and do no work at all and listen to a good story and ask some good questions along the way, hopefully. Tonight, we're getting into our first paranormal episode, The Ghosts of Moonville Tunnel. So hopefully, Jason, things don't get too spooky for you in your remote part of the woods in South Carolina. So I just want to um, go on on this. I, I literally live on an acre of land out in the middle of nowhere. Um, the guy behind me owns a bunch of acre, like a bunch of land. So, you know, out in the middle of nowhere in a wooden cabin, you know, talking about ghosts. I've never been a big ghost fan to begin with. So, yeah, let's let's talk scary stories. And pray that my wife doesn't decide to jump in on any good scary parts. Yeah, especially because this uh, does take place in a very wooded, remote part of Ohio. So, good luck. So all the ghosts are up in Ohio, not down here. That's good, good, good. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll find something for your your neck of the woods. So, with that said, Jason, are you ready? I am, I am. Okay, here we go. As always with with any story, especially a modern day paranormal story, we need to go back in time and talk about some history in order to get a better picture of what we're talking about today. So let's start with the history of the town of Moonville and the tunnel itself. So this all begins in 1856 with a man named Samuel Coe. Samuel Coe gave permission to the Marietta and Cincinnati Railroad to build a track across his land, which at the time was Brown Township. Now it's right outside of MacArthur, Ohio. This property actually sits right next to Hawking Hills. And I just want to say, like, this isn't a beautiful area. Um, if you just YouTube or um, just Google images of Hawking Hills, you can see how beautiful this area is. This is like right next to uh, where me and Paul lived up in Ohio. Yeah, this is actually um, in Appalachia, like right on the edge of Appalachia. It's not too far from where my mom was, was born. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a very heavily dense wooded area, but it is a beautiful, a beautiful area. So the MNC was an expanding railroad company and, and Co. seeing an opportunity to give the railroad an easier route between the city of Marietta, Ohio, which is a border town with, with West Virginia and a more populated part of the state, Cincinnati. He struck a deal with the railroad company to build through his land free of charge. The idea was that his remote piece of land in Appalachia, rich in coal mines and clay, would now be accessible by a major railroad and offer him an opportunity to capitalize on the resources his land provided. Soon after the railroad was laid, the small town of Moonville was erected. There were three other towns nearby across the eight-mile stretch of track, Hope Furnace, Ingham Station, and Kingswitch. If you dig a little further, there are some paranormal stories surrounding Hope Furnace Station, and, and actually the other two towns as well. But mostly Hope Furnace and Moonville are what we see a lot of these stories coming from today. This whole eight-mile stretch was at the time considered a dark stretch, not having a signal. So workers at the time did not like this part of the MNC 
as it was considered isolated and treacherous. So workers, what do you mean um, by which workers, the railroad workers? Yeah, so the conductors and the people driving the, 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 the trains and, and running the train system, they didn't like this area because it was isolated and treacherous. And what I mean by isolated and treacherous, there wasn't a whole lot going on here. It was heavily dense, a really dense wooded area. And without the signals, it caused a lot of issues. And you, we'll see, we'll get into it here in a bit, but we'll see how long it takes for them to actually add signals to this area. And so it was just considered a dark stretch. Um, that didn't have a lot going on. Okay. So part of what makes this area so unique is its isolation and also its population size. So at Moonville's peak in the 1870s and 1880s, there was at most only 100 people living in this town. These small towns today are mostly gone and considered ghost towns. Uh, so 100 people, I mean, that's not a big town. That's a pretty small town. It was mostly families that were all kind of congregated in one area. And we'll see as we go on. I mean, if you think about the 1880s and that and that time period, think about a family of two parents and 10 kids. I mean, that only gives you eight, nine, 10, 10 families to work with when it comes to having pe people with having tons of kids back in the day. So it was a pretty, yeah, it was a pretty small town. So Moonville was incredibly small, but it did have an inn, a saloon, a general store, a sawmill, a church that doubled as a schoolhouse, and of course, a cemetery. They also had a coal bank, which allowed the trains to load up on fuel for the rest of the journey. So a total of four trains came and went each day, and mostly serviced the town of miners. So it's actually really unique that a town this small had this much going on. Uh, the fact that four trains came and went each day was, was fairly unique at the time. Um, and mostly that was because of the coal bank that they had. Wow, it's crazy that there's like, um, thinking of these, these miners, minor towns up in Ohio, I mean, you would think of minor towns in Kentucky, but the fact that there's so much mining that was done in Ohio is kind of a crazy thought. I never thought about that. Yeah, it was it was mostly coal. Um, I, I think that Samuel Co. also had some clay um, resources that were, were mined. And most of the sources just talk about the coal. When I was reading some of the sources, they mentioned clay at the very beginning as a resource, but they never really get deep into how much was I guess, excavated or taken, but mostly it was the coal that was from these from these towns. So the only way in and out of Moonville was along the tracks. So they either purchased a ticket out or they walked. And one source mentioned riding horses along the tracks, but that was pretty rare as it was fairly dangerous with the trains coming in at around 50 miles an hour through the thick woods of Appalachia. So I'm, I'm going to kind of rapid fire to the rest of the history here because after the heydays of the 1880s, there's a swift decline in population and ultimately the death of the town. So in 1883, Samuel Coe dies. And just a few, few years after that, in 1887, the B&O buys the MNC, which led to a fairly significant decrease in traffic. So with this decrease in traffic, the town really slows down in population. And then it's hit with a smallpox outbreak in the 1890s. And in 1895, the last original founder dies. So smallpox is a, is a pretty bad disease. Um, I know that can spread pretty quickly and it's pretty dangerous. I'm surprised that they didn't just, I mean, I guess you say they decreased traffic in the town, which obviously makes sense, but I wouldn't doubt that some populations probably just cut off all traffic period to some of these towns that had smallpox just because of how deadly it can be to the rest of the world. Yeah. I mean, at the time, smallpox outbreaks were pretty dangerous and there's several big ones that happened in the 1800s and we'll, we'll get into it more here in a little bit, but uh, they do actually quarantine the town, and that's part of some of the ghost stories that come into play here a little bit later on. Of course. 
I'm surprised I don't have any COVID ghost stories yet. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Continue on. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into those eventually. <laughs> In 1903, the tunnel suffers a partial collapse and was repaired in 1904. By the 1930s, the town is pretty much gone, and there are a couple of families left, with a final family leaving in 1947. Oh, wow. Through the changing of hands and mergers in the 1970s, Chessie System Express, or the CSX, operated by the B&O, was officially in charge of this section of track. So now we're about 100 years removed from the founding of this small town, and it's pretty much gone. This area at the time was still considered a dark stretch especially since there was now no town to stop at. Dark stretches of track, ones without railroad signals, were few and far between. Up until this point, when there was an emergency stop on a dark stretch, a flagman with a lantern or flashlight was used to to flag down the train in order to inform the conductor to know that he needed to make a stop. You know, I was sitting here thinking about this. A flagman is sitting out there in the middle of the woods all by himself. Can you imagine how scary that would be? Because these guys sit out in the middle of the woods, right? You know that now that you're asking me that, I don't actually know. I, I assume that's the case because maybe the, the flagman lives in town. That is a great question because they have to flag down the train to stop them. And I'm not really sure what that looks like. But before like actual lights, they had to wave them down. And so maybe they were just standing out there. I, I actually don't know. That's a good question. It's a scary thought. It's a spooky thought. One that makes sense when you talk about some of the ghosts that we're getting ready to encounter. So in 1981, the CSX installed train signals on this part of the track because of the frequency of emergency stops that were happening. But Jason, you might ask, I thought this area was a dead area and a town no longer existed. You would be correct. On multiple occasions, conductors performed emergency stops because a flagman with a lantern was waving them down, signaling an emergency stop. They were being flagged down to make an emergency stop. By who? There weren't flagmen at this location anymore. We need scary music right here. Make a note. Add scary music here. (laughs) I'm going to drink some water so I can be more clear. Yes, exactly. The tracks were pretty much run down by this point, and in 1985, CSX could discontinue the movement of freight through this area. In 1986, a 10-year-old girl from the town of Mineral, which is located about 10 miles away, was killed walking the tracks. After the accident, CSX discontinued all train traffic. And by 1990, the last of the tracks are pulled up and completely removed. I just want to say, there's a 10-year-old girl just walking these random tracks. What in the world? Who lets their kid go out like this, for one thing? The 10-year-old girl doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it is a freak accident. So it is kind of weird that she was out there by herself just cruising down the track. But I think the problem with this with this area is a lot of these towns were connected by track only. So the only way to get between town to town was across the tracks, essentially. And so, yeah, I, I can't imagine ever letting my, my daughter's only, I mean, she's little, but I can't imagine let her, letting my daughter at 10 walk down tracks with active trains in the middle of freaking Appalachia. And that's how we get a ghost story. And that's how we get a ghost story. So now that we've gone through the brief history of Moonville and the surrounding train tracks, I want to get into the many ghost stories that persist through this area. So the most common ghost story I found was that of the following brakeman. So there, there's a, at least some variation of the brakeman or flagman that still roams the Moonville Tunnel and the surrounding track. The most common story is that of a brakeman or flagman who fell under the track and was crushed, fatally mangled by a freight train in or near the Moonville Tunnel. If you are not going to tell me a ghost story about um, a ghost that's floating with no legs. There is zero stories about a ghost with no legs. But there are some stories about a lantern with no person. All right. 
That's good enough, I guess. That might be might be close. <laughs> so basically, to give a little background as to what the brakemen do or how a brakeman would end up crushed by a train, you have to look at the time in which this took place. Prior to 1890, when auto couplers and air brakes were added to trains, a brakeman's job was to manually couple cars together and to manually pull the brake lever on each car when stopping the train. Can you imagine how stressful this job would be? Not only do you have to like, I'm sorry, I'm assuming and probably you're probably going to explain this later, but an autocoupler, I'm guessing, is the area in which two trains connect. And this man's job is to make sure that they connect correctly, right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. So I'm sorry if I'm going ahead of this, but like, that sounds pretty freaking dangerous. I wonder how many of these guys, how many people have died because of these situations gone wrong what's crazy about it is that there was a bit of timing that would take place when you had to manually couple these trains so the car would be pushed forward and the brakeman would have to stand between them and at the exact right moment would couple them together so this was a pretty dangerous job it took like the slightest misstep and a brakeman could find themselves crushed between them as they collided together once again another situation in which we should have a ghost story with a man with no legs well, this, this is different because they would just get squished. That wasn't even the worst aspect of a brakeman's job. The most dangerous part and where most accidents took place was when a train needed to be stopped abruptly. So the brakeman would have to run from car to car, pulling the manual brakes along the way. So one small lurch or jerk, and they could easily find themselves between the train and the track. Oh my gosh, that is just a scary, scary job. Yeah. Like, can you imagine? I'm just, like, thinking of, like, all the jobs about where people have to, like, climb those really tall lighting poles and, like, change lights where the for the planes, you know? I would almost rather do that job than have to run train to train to pull brakes. Because, I mean, it's not like trains these days where they're connected. You have to, like, jump from train to train, right? Yeah, it's pretty dangerous because they were jumping from car to car. An issue that happened a lot, most of the time when people would actually have problems, was in those, like, winter months when the train was like icy or wet one thing that it comes up again and again is how frequently these guys were just drinking to stay warm so they were drinking they were running from car to car these cars were covered in ice and they would just fall and get crushed so in regards to the moonville tunnel ghost there's various versions of this story so the frequency in which these people were killed there are actually multiple accounts linked to the ghost that is frequently cited here so the common link is that of a brakeman or a flagman had one too many drinks so while performing his job he fell on the tracks and was killed the newspaper the macarthur democrat reads and i quote a brakeman on the marietta and cincinnati railroad fell from the cars near cincinnati furnace on last tuesday march 29 1859 and was fatally injured when the wheels passing over and grinding to a shapeless mass the greater parts of his legs he was taken on the train to hampton and doctor's wolf and Ronell's sent for to perform an amputation. But the prostration of the vital energies was too great to attempt. The man is probably dead, ear this. The accident resulted from a too free use of liquor. Okay, I just want to say, how many people would love to have a job in which you have to drink alcohol to stay warm and have that free excuse to drink while you're working? You might come out without legs, but... Yeah, I, I'm going to say I'd rather just, you know, drink alcohol and try to hide it, and then drink alcohol and risk falling to my death. <laughs> or losing your legs. Or losing your legs. Also, reading newspapers from the 1800s, 
there's words that we don't use to, today, and the the actual cadence and these are really tough. It's hard to read these. I had to do multiple takes of that. That was not easy. Yeah, it took me a minute to understand what you were saying on some of those things. The vital <laughs> energies, but the prostration of the vital energies was too great to attempt it. It's also kind of interesting to understand how long it takes to get information. I mean, the fact that the, they're writing this down for a newspaper and they use the term is probably dead you're this it's kind of funny because if you think about it that's kind of a wild way to go about it like yeah yeah you know this guy's injured so badly he's gonna die he's not dead yet i'm writing this right now so by the time you hear this he's probably dead (laughs) it's interesting for sure so another variation was that of a flagman who after drinking too much was in the tunnel and seeing an oncoming train he raised his lantern for them to stop but it was just too late again as always there are contradictory stories across sources I actually have two books I read for this episode, a book by William M. Cullen, A History of Moonville, Ohio, and a Collection of Its Haunting Tales. And I actually pulled pretty heavily from his book. The second book, which I really only use as a cross-reference against Cullen, um, was a book by Janet Quackenbush called The Little Book of Moonville, Its Past, Its Ghosts, Its Legends. And it's written intentionally as a work of fiction, just compiling ghost stories um, to kind of one location. And it seems to merge some of these stories together. I I mainly bring her up to talk about my next point, because I did read this in multiple locations. Some variations of this ghost story talk about the brakeman who was killed as leaving the tavern after drinking really heavily and falling asleep on the tracks, later to be run over by a train and losing his head. Since there's multiple reports of people seeing the headless ghost, I wanted to add this piece just so I covered all my bases. But in reality, we'll cover the Headless Conductor here in a moment because Colin actually did some research and has a better source story on, on why there's a Headless Ghost. And I just want to say, like, this is one of the reasons I love um, listening to a lot of your stories or reading is because, like, you will do your research for pretty much every story or project that you work on to make sure that you have all your facts straight. I think that's also a problem because... I end up just getting lost in the weeds and I never actually do anything like this podcast. I I hope somebody hears it, but I mean, who knows? (laughs) Who knows where this goes? I am excited because I think we actually have put together something pretty good here. So we'll see what happens. But if you're listening to this, that means you're listening to a project, probably the first project I've actually completed. So thank you for listening. So uh, back to the ghost (laughs) of the flagman and the brakeman. Again, my intention is to have all this info in the show notes so you can take a look at for yourself. This particular story, as it seems to be a direct experience of a B&O worker that was relayed to the author of the blog, Kirk DePeel. So this was written on October 1993. I'm going to quote this uh, from, it's like spikesy.com. You can find this in the, in the show notes. But I wanted to share his personal recollection um, from a story that was told to him by an actual B&O uh, worker. A fast-moving B&O freight train is heading west in the Moonville area. At the throttle is a rookie engineer, making only his third one on this line. It's around 11.30 on a July night. The year is 1977. Up to now, everything has been normal and dull. But this changes as they approach Moonville Tunnel. About 500 yards ahead, the engineer sees the figure of a dark man with a lantern. He is swinging the lantern back and forth, trying to get the train to stop. As a rookie engineer prepares to put the train into emergency, he is stopped by the conductor. The conductor has seen this many times before. He tells him in about 15 seconds he'll understand why. The train approaches the tunnel at about 50 miles an hour. The lights from the engine can now make out the full figure of a man. 
but something is wrong. The light appears to be going right through him. In an instant, the train is on him, and he is gone. I just want to say that gives me goosebumps. I mean, when you think about it, like, the fact that this engineer has seen this multiple times, and he's like, just wait a second. And, like, this is a normal thing, seeing a floating lantern with a full figure of a man, ghost, and all of a sudden he's gone. Like, you can't, oh my gosh, you cannot tell me that doesn't give you goosebumps. Yeah, it's it's pretty freaky. But the, the issue I have is I think it's kind of funny because I keep picturing in my head this conductor being like, I've seen this before. You'll understand why in 15 seconds. And they get up there and there's actually a person on the tracks and they run somebody over. I keep thinking that. Like, what if it's, I guess like the boy who cried wolf. Like, <laughs> what like if this time it wasn't thing. actually a ghost? <laughs> no, it is pretty, it is pretty freaky because that's the thing. And that's what I find so compelling about this is that the people that own their railroad CSX, I put in a signal here because this is happening so much that they were having problems with trains that were stopping making emergency stops for no reason. But then also to the point where our conductors were like, oh, we see this all the time. We're not stopping. It's a ghost. It's crazy because a company actually was like, we probably should do something about this because our freight trains are stopping here in the middle of the woods. I think this adds a little bit of credibility to the stories that we're hearing here, which is makes it even more freaky that is insane so and like i said i mean this story was super common from the 70s to 1981 and so 1981 was when the signal was added to the track goosebumps man goosebumps there are additional ghost stories that come into play here and and first there's a story of thomas dexter an african-american freed slave who settled in athens with his family of farmers their third child arrest i'm not going to get his name right i'm going to try my best Aristus Dexter was born in 1866, seven years after the account of the man from the MacArthur Democrat. So according to Colin's research, Dexter was a coal miner from Moonville, and after work, one late night was drinking heavily with some other miners, and after doing so, got on the tracks to walk home. It said Dexter carried his lantern along the tracks, and after entering the tunnel, was struck by an oncoming train. So the key to the story is the lantern. There's so many ghost stories that involve the, the lantern specifically. So as the train approached the tunnel and Dexter realized he was in a pinch and unable to escape, he began waving his lantern trying to get the train to stop. Of course, it was too late and he was hit and killed by the train. So I just want to say, you say that there's the ghost stories about just the floating lantern. When you think about it, this could possibly be Dexter. I mean, because if you're in a dark tunnel, you're not going to see a dark person with just the lantern. You know what I mean? You're going to see the lantern first. That's true. But it's also interesting because there's a lot of stories that claim to see the tall African-American man walk in the tracks with his lantern. There's stories of like people saying, we saw this guy, eight foot tall African-American holding a lantern. When we approached him, he was gone. Yeah, it's pretty creepy because the whole thing with the lantern, I mean, it, it flows through a lot of this. There's the flagman. There's the brakeman. But then there's also this African-American who got off work, drank with his buddies, got hit by a train while carrying a lantern. And that's three separate ghosts that might be one, but might be three separate ghosts. I mean, there's three different incidents. There's three different types of people here that could be part of this story. And so many people see floating lanterns. Some people see a tall African-American. Some people see a headless conductor. There's a lot here. But I think what happens a lot of times with these ghost stories is when you have so many of these stacked together, sometimes you end up with 
a conglomerate of all these stories, people see different ghosts and might think of, okay, it's the same ghost, but it could be like multiple different people. And, and you're right. I mean, the floating lantern by itself could be this guy, Dexter, but it also could be the, the guy that got ran over by the train, the brakeman. Yeah, that's true. And they, that's, I think that definitely is one of the most difficult things about some of these ghost stories, especially if a person hears one ghost story about one person, you know, all of a sudden you're looking for a ghost and you could obviously just say it's one of the other three. Yeah. And that's the thing is there's so much activity here. And there's been so many deaths here. Who knows what people are seeing? I mean, people could be seeing different ghosts every single time. And I do want to talk about, there is a story that uh, from that book uh, with Quack and Bush, which again, I, I want to say she labels her book as a work of fiction, but it is a story that comes from this area. And it's that of the headless conductor. Uh, but again, Colin seemed to do more research on this matter. And he talks about an actual incident that dates back to 1890, which it was roughly around the time as a smallpox outbreak which again, we're going to get into later, but it ties into this story because there's different variations of the story, but the most common one is of a conductor that wasn't going to stop because smallpox instead stops and gets out, check on a leaky brake line. While the conductor was under the train, the engineer hit the throttle, rolling over him and decapitating him. So the story goes on to say the engineer then tosses the man's head into the woods. And now the ghost of the conductor roams the area looking for his head. There are varying reasons for this, and one source said the conductor was having an affair with the engineer's wife. The other just said they didn't like each other. But all in all, the engineer was messing with the conductor, or it even goes as far as saying the engineer was just messing with the conductor and it just went too far. Either way, I mean, I can't, I could never imagine picking up a guy's head and tossing it into the woods after I just killed him. Even if I was like, he's like, oh, I'm sleeping with my wife. I'm going to throw his head in the woods. Like, I just couldn't imagine what was going through this guy's mind. Yeah. I mean, I, I obviously work with bodies, and I don't know if I could have the ability to just pick up someone's head and just throw it into the woods for the coyotes. I mean, what did you do with the rest of the body? Yeah, I don't know. And I want to clarify something. When Jason said he works with bodies, he's a nurse on an ICU floor where people die. Where people die. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. He's not like a mortician. He's a nurse that uh, is on a high... I, what would you say? Like a high volume of deaths happen in, in your line of work. Yes, sadly. So before I move on to the other ghosts from this town, I want to read a passage from the Chillicothe Gazette from February of 1895, just to put into perspective how long this area has been dealing with ghosts. Again, I'm reading from a newspaper from the 1800s, so good luck with everybody listening to this because we're getting into some interesting verbiage. The ghost of Moonville, after an absence of one year, has returned. And it is again at its old pranks, haunting B&O, the Southwest freight trains and their crews. It appeared Monday night, February the 11th, in front of Fast Freight number 99, westbound, just east of the cut, which is one half mile the other side of Moonville, at the point where Engineer Lawhead lost his life and Engineer Walters was injured. The ghost, attired in a pure white robe, carried a lantern. It had a flowing white beard. Its eyes glistened like balls of fire, and surrounding it was a halo of twinkling stars. When the train stopped, the ghost stepped off the track and disappeared into the rocks nearby. So the sounds, like honestly, this ghost story sounds slightly exaggerated. When you think about like eyes glistened like balls of fire and surrounding halo of twinkling stars, I mean, it just sounds so exaggerated. 
Yeah, I, I imagine that this person that was writing this is taking some liberty. <laughs> it sounds like he's writing about like an angel or something. And what's interesting too here is that the whole the ghost attired in pure white robe with a halo that doesn't really come up anywhere else. I didn't see that in a whole lot of places. I think there was something in the in Quackenbush's book about that. That again was more fiction. So who the heck are these people? The only records available about the engineer named Lawhead are that of people that died in the early 1900s. Possibly with time, like what happens often with records, maybe they're just kind of hard to come by and they got squished together with different dates. But the legends of their death as the brakeman or the flagman continue. The names other than this article have been forgotten. Another personal account shared in Cullen's book is that of a group of six teens who had an encounter with the ghost at Moonville Tunnel in 1979. The group was drinking beer and swimming in Raccoon Creek. When they were done, they headed back to their car and they noticed someone approaching with a light. Fearing it was the sheriff, several of them went ahead with their drinking evidence while the other two decided to approach the officer to kind of just clear things up. While the two were walking to the tunnel, the one a little bit further ahead froze, turned and ran, terrified of what he just witnessed. When they all got back to the car, it was decided that the driver and one teen who had not been drinking should go and investigate, as they could make a more sober assessment of the situation. When approaching the man with a light, after getting within eyesight of him, they realized that the light was out of a lantern, a lantern that had no one holding it. While standing there stunned, the lantern stopped and began swinging slowly back and forth. As seeing this, the teens ran back to their car and drove off into the night. So this could have totally been like somebody messing with like i mean because you have six teens here at first like my thought is oh man somebody's messing with somebody you know like they're friends they're all hanging out where most haunted things go but the fact that they sent the sober one out like all the rest of them are drunk and they sent the sober guy out and the sober guy is the one that just witnessed it stop in midair and start swinging back and forth that tells me that there's a possibility that was real yeah it's pretty freaky and what's interesting too is that you got to also remember 1979, I, I don't know about the other time periods, but that was roughly the time when all these trains were stopping because of these lanterns that they were seeing on the side of the road. There was a lot of activity in the 70s, and I wonder if that's kind of that same ghost. It gives a little bit more credence to what the B&O workers were running into. We've pretty much covered all the ghosts stemming from employment of either the train company, or the mines in Moonville. But I want to talk about next is the smallpox outbreak that occurred in the mid-1890s. So by the 1890s, there had been several large smallpox outbreaks across the world. You know, Most notably, the Great Plains smallpox epidemic of 1837 that claimed some, some 17,000 lives along the Missouri River alone. And the smallpox outbreak across Europe in 1870 following the Franco-Prussian War that killed half a million people. It's an extremely contagious and highly fatal virus. Yeah, it is. I mean, obviously, we obviously made vaccines for this now. So I would imagine that this would be just as bad, I, worse than COVID, I'm sure. I mean, COVID doesn't compare to this at all. Things people dealt with in the 1800s is basically an extremely dangerous version of like chickenpox. Uh, they had a high fatality rate. I would not want to work in the ICU in the 1800s. I don't even know if they had an ICU in the 1800s. So in Moonville in the 1890s, there was such an outbreak and in an attempt to keep it from spreading, the town of Moonville was quarantined. The trains were ordered not to stop in the town, and soon the town began running out of supplies. 
the townspeople got together and decided they needed someone to go out and stop a train. It said the local doctor volunteered and went out with his lantern. The train needed to be signaled on the other side of the tunnel in order for it to stop in time in Moonville. The doctor, with his white coat and lantern, approached the tunnel. Once inside and approaching the other end, he heard a train coming. Supposedly delirious from the disease, the doctor misjudged the proximity to the train, and with the oncoming train speeding towards him at 50 miles an hour, he had little to no time to get out of its way. All he could do was wave his lantern. The train hit and killed the doctor, and the official story goes that he was decapitated upon being struck by the oncoming train. So I just want to say, you just read a story, but the one that sounded super exaggerated about the eyes with fireball light and halo of stars with a man in a white coat and a lantern. I bet you anything it was this doctor. Now that you say that, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, the, the, the white coat could be from the doctor being killed. So what year? What year was the that article published? Here we go. Uh, in 1895. So this was right after that. So 1890 is when that doctor died. Wow, so five years later. You can't tell me that's not him. Also, I just want to think about this too. When a train hits a person, I don't mean to be graphic, but the splatter of that mess is got to be crazy. Yeah, I, I imagine when someone gets hit by a train, they immediately have a halo over their head. That could very easily be this doctor. That, I mean, it's crazy. I can't imagine the damage a train can do. I mean, those things are, are intense. You know, even after this doctor dies, how's it leave that town? Like, what's the town doing now? They just lost their main, their main man. Yeah, it's actually interesting that you bring that up because a lot of the stories that talk about the smallpox stuff, once the doctor dies and these story and the stories that talk about the smallpox epidemic, a lot more people would start dying from smallpox. That's so sad. There's an interesting tangent here and different variations of the story. And I'm going to talk about them, but I don't know how much of these like are actually based in reality because the town exists way past this. But one version talks about the town being burned to the ground, killing a bunch of people that live there. And there's other versions stating that men from surrounding towns shot and killed the people of Moonville to keep the virus from spreading. But it doesn't really make sense because this happened in the 1890s and there were people living there in, into the 1940s. Oh, wow. That's still really sad. Because I, I, I guarantee you some towns died like that, you know? Oh, everyone's got smallpox. All right, let's put them out. People were freaked out by... I mean, people are still... Like, imagine... Think about COVID, how, how crazy... People were asking. I mean, I remember getting groceries and wiping them down with Clorox wipes, like in the first couple of weeks of COVID, because we had no idea what was going on. Imagine back then, before you had access to information, you're you're secluded in these areas, and then people are just dropping all around you with smallpox. I can't imagine how freaky that would be. Oh man, that would be terrible once you get it too. It's like a death sentence. So now we're, we're going to change gears here a little bit, and we're going to talk about the Lavender Lady. So near Moonville Tunnel, there's a train trestle that crosses Raccoon Creek. And if you remember from earlier, this is where those those teens were drinking and, and, and hanging out. A train trestle is essentially a narrow bridge, just wide enough for train tracks to be laid. This trestle sits about 20 feet high over the rocky creek below, and seemingly was a location of many accidents involving train strikes. This particular was that of a woman who was walking from the town of Mineral to the town of Moonville. 
According to the Athens messenger, she was struck and killed while crossing the trestle, unable to get out of its way, and was thrown to the rocks below. And so it's not really known if the train is what killed her or the fall is what killed her. But it's said that if you walk this trail near the tunnel, you can sometimes smell lavender. Hence the name Lavender Lady. That makes more sense now. It does. Um, and there's actually more stories that involve women specifically and, and female ghosts through this area. But yeah, I think it's interesting because this is the only the only thing that comes up that involves a smell. Everything else is like visual. But this ghost specifically, people around this area as are walking the trails can smell lavender, which I think is a unique thing for a ghost to have a smell as opposed to like a visual cue or a sound. I'll just like go out to this area and there'd just be lavender growing like on the side of the track all around that area that you smell lavender at. <laughs> I don't plan on going over here. I, I like to read about things from afar, write about them, talk about them. I'm not going to Moonville. Keep the evil where it's at. So many people have since claimed to see a woman walking the tunnel or the path leading to the tunnel. And similarly to the brakeman or flagman and the miners story, there are several different stories that can be talked about when it comes to the female ghosts. So, of course, Lavender Lady is the most prominent when it comes to like the smells and things. But there's also some stories about young women following hikers on the trails and complaints from hikers who claim to have seen women standing on the trestles before jumping into Raccoon Creek below. On any normal day, if women were following me, I mean, I might not find that as a bad thing. Ghost women... I just don't know how I feel about that one. I think anytime you're walking through trails in Appalachia, if you see somebody following you, I don't think it's a good thing. I, I don't, there's no, no situation where I'm like, I find comfort in someone following me through the woods of Appalachia. doesn't happen. <laughs> I mean, maybe you'll get lucky and they'll protect you from a bear. No, you're gone. It's over. <laughs> Especially near Moonville. So now there's also stories relating to ladies caught in the tunnel with nowhere to go, who are struck and decapitated by the oncoming train. So there's one with a, a woman in a blue dress who is said to be pregnant, and the ghost of another who, when approached, quickens her pace, and if caught, darts into the tunnel. There's not a lot of details around these that I saw when I was doing the research for this episode, but like like I said before, there, there tends to be a blending of stories from source to source, where these specific details were just kind of actually blended together, when we're talking specifically about the women ghost or the female ghost of Moonville. So there's also a tale of a woman who supposedly drowned her baby in Raccoon Creek. And on dark nights, if you park your car there and you get out, you can hear the sounds of a crying baby. This story wasn't corroborated anywhere and didn't link back to any historical incidents, but it also sounds incredibly similar to what I imagine is a common ghost trope. So Jason, if you remember when we were kids or teenagers, and we drove over to Crybaby Bridge. We parked our car, we turned off the lights, and we got out. You know, it's a spooky experience, but this story just kind of feels similar to Crybaby Bridge and that trope that probably 90% of high schoolers did. You know, actually, as a side note, not sure if we talked about this, but um, that bridge we went to in high school, a friend of mine knew a kid that was killed and his body was dumped there. There was an article about it happening, and I talked to him about it afterwards, and it's a pretty freaky thing, but it just kind of adds to the eeriness of these little small town tropes of these bridges and secluded areas that might be haunted by ghosts. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I remember it very vaguely. I remember the one like haunted mansion that we went into too, like probably illegally by all accounts. Um, 
but I remember, I, I feel like looking back, you kind of remember it being super scary, but in all reality, if we were actually there, it really wasn't as bad as we like remember it to be. You know what I mean? Yeah, I forgot about that haunted house. I think we were just trespassing <laughs> on a house that was kind of run down, but there were homeless people in there. We found out later in life and the, the city actually had to shut that thing down because there was people... There was homeless people living in there. I think that's what we saw too. When that we saw that motion, yeah, the light in the upstairs room. Yeah, we all took off running. I think that was just a homeless person. <laughs> Dude, that was creepy. But either way, I do not want to go to a place where some woman drowned her baby. Like I would never ever go there to hear that sound. Not something we want to think about for sure. I do want to get through one more ghost that could be described as a spirit of a woman or a young girl. I guess in this particular situation. So remember back when we talked about the little 10-year-old girl killed in 1986? Well, she is the last recorded death from this area. And I don't want to make light of her death, as there is sure to be living family around. But it's said that a little girl's laugh can be sometimes heard at the tunnel entrance. And some people assign that laughter to this girl who was killed in 1986. Man, if that is not the most creepiest thing. Like you hear some little girl laugh. I don't want to be in a dark tunnel in Appalachia hearing a little girl laughing. That's the last thing I want to hear. I have a hard enough time as it is waking up in the middle of the night with my daughter standing two inches from my face, waking me up. I do not want to hear a ghost (laughs) in a tunnel in freaking Appalachia. That's not fun. That's terrifying. So the last little bit here, we have a few more deaths that I want to talk about, but they're kind of just miscellaneous deaths. I wasn't really sure how to talk about them, but I do want to touch on them. Um, Before we wrap up, because of course, when we talk about ghosts or spirits tied to any one specific place, I think it's possible that the activity kind of stacks on itself. There's a story of a drunk man who was robbed and killed before being hit by a train. And another that was said to have been robbed and killed at the Moonville Inn. And so a ghost of a man sometimes is seen standing in the place where the inn used to be. There's also the story of Charles Ferguson, who was killed on the tracks in 1954. He stood at the tracks waiting for the train to pass, and after it did, he stepped out onto the track to cross. Unknowingly, he stepped right into the path of the back section of the train, which had come uncoupled from the front section. Kind of a bizarre accident. Yeah, that's a real freak accident. Like, you notice the whole train goes by, and you're like, oh, it's safe. And then all of a sudden, this other piece comes and hits you. That's crazy, man. It's also amazing to me how much traffic this area gets when you think about how these towns are pretty much gone by this time. So 1947 was when the last family moved out. Eight years later, seven years later, you have a guy walking the tracks. And there's so many stories of people walking the tracks after these towns really are shrinking. And it's interesting how much traffic there was. And that's probably why there were so many deaths. Because there are so few. Like when you talk about trains going through like a populated area, everyone knows the train's there. The train knows people could possibly be there. There's tracks, there's all kinds of different signals and things happening. But in these really remote areas, if someone is kind of just roaming the area, they could easily be caught off guard by a train. I mean, I think that's why there's so many deaths from from this part of part of Appalachia with, with the train tracks. You would still think that the noise would be a, a good warning sign. You'd think. So the last person I want to talk about is Amzie Kennard. And so now accounts vary around Amzie. But one state's an accident in which he stepped out in front of an oncoming train due to a mining accident that had left him with a mental disability. Another variation on this is after being diagnosed with cancer, 
He went around to his family and relatives and said goodbye, and then intentionally stepped into the path of an oncoming train. That's really sad. Yeah, and it's just another, again, there's so many miscellaneous stories of people just dying in this area. It's just another one that gets kind of added on. And so to wrap this all up, the, the final story I have is that of a young boy who, when walking through the tunnel, was stopped when he heard a disembodied voice. He ran out of the tunnel in fear, only then to see an oncoming train zip past him. If he hadn't left when he did, he surely would have been killed. And what the boy heard was, get out. If that doesn't give you goosebumps, I don't know what would. Hearing a disembodied voice, seeing a disembodied lantern, smelling a lady. <laughs> like, that's terrifying. All of it's scary. There's so many, there's so much going on here. There's so many ghost stories. I mean, I had a lot of fun doing all this research and compiling all this. But it's crazy because when you talk about haunted things and when you look through and hear about ghost stories, it typically ties back to like one event. One death, one thing. But this, like, as I was going through this, it was like story after story after story of people that died or were killed or whatever in this area over such a short span of time. It's it's pretty freaky how much happened here, how much death happened here. And it's also not surprising that you're seeing there's so much ghost activity because so many people did die in this area. That it's not shocking that when you go there today, there's ghosts. Yeah. And that's what I was going to call out too, is the fact that there was so many ghost stories that a company actually had to spend money to install lights or the fact that there's so many ghost stories around this area that the conductors themselves know when not to stop the train because they know that there's going to be a ghost in that area. If that doesn't give you chills, I don't know what does. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's very scary. And I think whenever you have, things that validate i mean we all know in today's society or in any society when a company spends money to do something they're not doing that just willy-nilly that's not just like oh i'm gonna put a signal in here for fun like something came up there was a frequency of issues that this train system was having that they had to put a signal in and the only thing that we can even come back to or point to is a ghost that was stopping a train. It's crazy the validity that businesses can give to a ghost story. I think that's an important piece of this, I think. I also think like the fact that there's two books mentioning all these ghost stories is kind of a, a crazy thing too. You know, you got a company spending money to install lights because of the ghosts. You've got people writing books about these ghosts. You have so many witnesses. And that's what I love about when you tell a story is the fact that you have all this research done. But yeah, no, you're, you're not you're not wrong. There are multiple books. There's multiple blogs. There's a lot of resources here. And we're going to put them in the show notes here at the end. Um, so, you know, feel free to go out, read the books. Um, Colin put together a lot of good information. He compiled that. It, it seems like he did a lot of research on this. It was something we didn't actually get into was there have been those ghost hunters, the people that bring out... Uh, different types of tech to, to this area. And there's a whole another piece of, of this. It's a phenomenon that this area has drawn so many people because of the activity that's here. There's a lot that happens here. And I'm glad that our first paranormal episode was about a ghost story from not too far from where we grew up. And so it's cool to have something that we could relate to and talk about in an area that both Jason and I essentially have been to in Western Appalachia. 
I, I am now happy to know that I live in South Carolina, almost eight hours away from where all this has happened. The next ghost story that I do is going to be as close to where you live as I can find. That's my goal. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> I do I do think that we need to visit this tunnel, though, dude. I really think that needs to be our, uh, our next trip. If we do that, I'm not telling my wife. She can't hear about it. She's already nervous that I'm making episodes about ghosts. Um, can't be inviting spirits into the house. So we just kind of keep her out of the loop. <laughs> Maybe spraying holy water all over the place. Yeah, we'll pray over the house multiple times. We'll do an episode about angels next. That way we can have some holiness brought back into this. Bring uh, Christ back into our lives. So to wrap up, I, I appreciate your time. Thank you all for listening. Please join us. Continue to listen to the episodes as we release them. Thank you, Jason, for jumping on with me from the wooded area that is your house. Thanks again, everybody. And we'll see you next time. If I see a lantern sitting outside my window tonight, I'm done with this. I want to text your wife and tell her to walk outside with a lantern. She would do it too. That's what sucks.